0: Well, good morning. Good morning. How all y'all doing? Because that's how we, we talk like that now. It's like this really strange thing. When you go to Nashville, it just like overtakes you and you finally succumb and you start saying y'all and all y'all. And so I'm just warning you, it's probably going to happen a lot during the service today. But it is so good to be back with all of you. I, I can't tell you... How much I have been anticipating this Sunday for literally months and months on end. And so, so grateful to be back. My family is actually with me today, which is so much fun. We're back in West Michigan for several days. And, uh, and I know a lot of you had just a huge impact on my four kiddos um, when we were here. And so, here's just a, an updated picture on our crew right now. Um, Denyan is 10. And yeah, so so Denian's 10, Araya is 8, Calyx is 6, and looks constipated in every photo we take. <laughs> we have not figured out how to remedy that. Maybe some of you photographers out there could give us some good pointers. Uh, in fact... Danion and Calix are with my wife up here in the front row and Araya and our three-year-old Zyler are, are back in the kids ministry. And we mentioned to Calix, I said, hey, buddy, I'm going to say something just about you. And, you know, it, it might be funny to the group. And he said, oh, do I get to come on stage? I was like, I don't think you want to come on stage after this one. So... Um, And then Zyler there is three and wants to rule the world eventually, so he's giving us a run for his money and uh, for our money. But uh, so this is our crew. And um, for those of you who I've not had a chance to meet before, I had the incredible privilege of serving as the teaching pastor here for several years. And it's been a year since I last guest taught, it's been exactly a year. And for those of you who recall and were here last year, uh, my family and I had been in Nashville for six months. We had been gone from Central um, for just over eight, and uh, I had mentioned to you last summer that we had no idea yet why God had moved us to Nashville. And now being a year later, we actually do have some clue (laughs) why we're in Nashville. And uh, it's really just materialized in the last few months. And I just mentioned to Craig, I said, hey, are you good if I just give give them a quick update on things? He's like, yeah, please do. So in February, something that has just been an umbrella term for the ministry stuff that I was doing was just called uh, walking the text. That Walking the Text became a formal nonprofit organization, and we launched a brand new website at walkingthetext.com where the entire ministry is around creating experiences and resources. Uh, to help people learn, love, and live out the Bible as it was intended by understanding its original context. And so everything is there, but I wanted to highlight two things because there's nothing that you pay for at Walking the Text. Everything is free. We're just constantly trying to make resources that will help people better understand and engage the Bible. And two things I wanted to highlight is that in February, with the website, we launched this thing called the Teaching Series. And every week, I do a TED Talk-length teaching 18 minutes or so or less on some aspect of the Bible, and again, that's just delivered to you for free, and people get emails on Tuesday morning, so they're video teaching, so they're highly visual, Um, and then there's also discussion questions for small groups, for individual study, and it's also available as a podcast, and so... You can learn more about that at walkingthetext.com. And then also I wrote an e-book. It's a short e-book. It's only 40 pages long called The Number One Mistake Most Everyone Makes Reading the Bible. And it's the first time that I have laid out in a framework about how I think we all um, ought to be engaging the Bible and reading the Bible Uh, in relationship to its original context. And so I wrote this for the seasoned follower of Jesus who's been at this for 50 plus years. This will challenge you to think about the Bible in different ways to get back at its context. And I also wrote it for the people who've never picked up a Bible and they can understand exactly what's going on or even for my 10-year-old to be able to read it and understand. So those are just some resources and there's other things at Walking the Text. And this is about... 75, 80% of my world and the other 20%, God's got me in the business sector and I'm really loving and working with business leaders and whatnot. Um, But this is helpful for you, for those of you who are interested in other resources on how to read the Bible uh, and to read it well. So that's that, but my joy is being able to be here today to continue the series that you all started last week on the Psalms. And even though this has been set for quite a while that I was going to be coming on this particular Sunday, Craig and Steve reached out to me not long ago and said, hey, we're going to do summer uh, in the Psalms, and would you be up for doing Psalm 34? And I was like, yes, I would love to. I have no idea what's in Psalm 34, but I would love to do it. And then I went to Psalm 34, and I was like, oh man, this is going to be great, because There's 150 psalms, and only a few actually have what we call a header, which tells us not only who wrote it, but the even more rare occurrence is the context for why they wrote the psalm in the first place. So you don't have to go to Psalm 34 quite yet. We will be back there, but I just want to read to you. What the header is, because then you're going to understand why I was so excited about this particular psalm. It says this of David, so lets us know that David wrote it when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. And this is going to be a lot of fun to tackle. So we're going to go to this passage, what this is referencing, because it's in 1 Samuel. And I just want to make a quick notation because I'm going to forget to tell you if we come back later. It says when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, the guy we're actually going to see in 1 Samuel 21 is a guy by the name of Achish. And so some go, well, there's a discrepancy there. Well, maybe, but probably not. Abimelech in Hebrew means my dad is king. So if your dad is king, guess what you get to be? Right, king. So they actually think that this was a throne title, and Achish is his actual name. And so I just wanted to preface that as we go to 1 Samuel 21. That's where I would like to invite you. So if you have, if you snagged one of the Bibles on the back, if you want to pull out your phone or a tablet, whatever you have. And if you want to come to 1, uh, 1 Samuel 21. If you're not familiar with the Bible, this is the ninth book in the Bible. So begin at the, the very beginning and head to the right, and you'll come to 1 Samuel. There's also a 2 Samuel, but this is in 1 Samuel 21. And there's a context for even 1 Samuel 21. And so I'm going to breeze through this really quickly. But David, who later becomes King David, comes on the scene in the Bible in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And it happens that Samuel, who's the prophet, anoints David as the next king of Israel. So that happens in chapter 16, but there's already a king. It's King Saul. In chapter 17, David defeats Goliath in the Ela Valley. So here in this valley... David is victorious and he rises to stardom and literally a song is then constructed around this and it goes like this Saul has slayed his thousands but David his tens of thousands because Saul is king so you got to give the king his due but it's the women that constructed this song and sang it. And they go, but David, his tens of thousands. And because David defeats Goliath in the Elah Valley... King Saul has him as a major military commander now for the Israelites. But because David is so successful, Saul gets insanely jealous that in the next two chapters, he tries to kill David several times. And then in chapter 20, you have Jonathan, who is Saul's son, affirms that David needs to flee. And so when we encounter David here in 1 Samuel 21, he is a fugitive running from the king of Israel, King Saul, and he shows up in a place called Nob. In your text, it's N-O-B, reads Nob, but it's Nov in Hebrew. And so let me just show you on a map where we are dealing with in the country. So David has just been with Jonathan. Jonathan's his best friend, the Uh, the king's son, in Gibeah, and he goes to Nov, and nobody knows exactly where Nov is. It's got to be within a couple miles of Jerusalem or so, and it is here, for those of you who know your tabernacle history, it moved from Shiloh to this place of Nov for a very short period of time, and so when David shows up in Nov, he's going to the tabernacle area, and he meets the priest whose name is Ahimelech. And immediately Achimelech says to David, "Why are you alone?" David is a major military commander. David would have never gone anywhere without a bodyguard or several bodyguards. And immediately Achimelech the priest is suspicious because he goes, "Why why are you alone?" And David goes, I need some food. And he's like, okay, this is even more strange. And David says, listen, I'm on urgent business from the king. I had to leave so fast that I don't even have food. So David doesn't tell him exactly what's going on, either to protect him, because David is a fugitive, and this, if this priest helps David, this could come back on the priest, which it actually does later on in the story. Or David doesn't trust the priest to let King Saul know what's going on. But either way, David is asking for food. He has no food. And he gets some bread. And then we find out just how desperate David is, because not only does he not have food, he's missing something really important. And so in verse 8, he says this, David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? i haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent the priest replied the sword of goliath the philistine whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here now this is such an interesting way for the priest to talk he's like well i've got the sword of goliath you know the philistine you remember that guy you killed in the Ela Valley? I wonder if David is standing there going, you know what? I totally forgot about that. Like, thanks for reminding me about the most epic moment in my life when I took out Goliath. Like, it's just hilarious. And then the priest goes on. And he says, here, here's a sword. There's nothing like it. And David replies, he says, there is none like it. Give it to me. So, in a weird sense of events, enshrined at the tabernacle in some way is Goliath's sword. And David goes, Give it to me. I'm taking that. And so, David is able to get the sword. Now, Goliath's sword would have been a lot bigger than this. All right? By the way, do you know how hard this is to get on an airplane these days? <laughs> they totally wig out. Uh, actually, this belongs to my dad, and I have no idea why my dad has a sword, but it's the biggest sword that I could find. It's huge. Now, I'm five foot nine. Anthropological evidence lets us know that the Israelites in David's day were on average of five, five. Friends, in the ancient world, I would have been a beast, all right? You laugh. I got the sword, right? Goliath is nine feet tall. The sword is bigger than this. And David gets his hands on the sword. And now David has bread. He's got his provision. He's now got his protection. And then he goes somewhere else. And check out where he goes. Verse 10 That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Does anybody have any idea where Goliath was from? He's actually from Gath. David goes waltzing into Gath where Goliath was from carrying a little bit of a sword And he goes to gath now some of you are like okay gath why is that important other than the fact that it's goliath's hometown well on the map here from nov gath is 25 miles away it's one of the five major cities of the philistines it's called the philistine pentopolis the five cities of the philistines there were other but these are the big five they're all starred there on the left side of the map And he goes to Gath. The Philistines are the arch nemesis of the Israelites. This is why David had to fight Goliath in the first place because the Philistines are trying to take over the country. And so David goes to Gath and Gath is a major site and it's even a big excavation site today. Here is an aerial photo of all of the excavation areas. And in the lower right-hand corner, you see the circled area This was really cool. Just a few years ago, they actually uncovered the gate complex from the time of David, which is where this story, as we read further on, actually took place. Now you look at that and you go, looks like a bunch of dirt. Yep, (laughs) it is right now. Here's an artist's rendering of what a similar gate complex would have looked like in the time of David. Now here's what's interesting about a gate complex is that you've got these two big wooden doors as you go into the city, and this is the only way in and out of a walled city, is the gate. And you can see in the back there an important person sitting under a canopy that in the ancient world, this was your courthouse. This is where the king conducted his business. He had no separate building for that. They actually did that in the gate complex, And so David goes waltzing into Gath, probably hoping for a little bit of anonymity. Now, this has been a little while since David fought Goliath in the valley of Elah. And in that valley, David is away from all of the Philistines. The Israelites are on one side, the Philistines are on the other. David meets Goliath out in the middle of the valley. And David has grown up. He's probably hoping that nobody can recognize him whatsoever. He is so desperate to get away from Saul, he decides to go to the one place that Saul won't look for him at which is Gath, the hometown of Goliath, who David killed in the Valley of Elah. So David is hoping for anonymity. And then check this out. That day, verse 10, David fled from Saul, went to Achish, king of Gath. Verse 11, but the servants Achish said to him, isn't this David the king of the land? No, that's Saul, but they're calling him king of the land. They recognize David the moment he walks through the city gate. And then they go on and say this, isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Uh Uh-oh, they know the song. And David's anonymity is gone. And then it says this, David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. And then Akish said to his servants, look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? (laughs) Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? And David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So so, David goes walking into the city. And right away they go, well, hello there, David. What you got in your hand there? I wonder if David's like, what, this? You, You know, it's the strangest thing how I came across this particular sword. And they're saying, Isn't, aren't you the one that they sing the song about? Saul is slaved his thousands. David is tens of thousands. And immediately, like, fear just rises in front of David. And all of a sudden, David recognizes, okay, maybe this wasn't the best plan. Coming into Gath with Goliath's sword. And David is going, okay, plan B, plan B, plan B. What's plan B? And he looks around. And apparently, as Akish says, there is no shortage of madmen. In the Gath area, and David feigns madness. He starts acting insane. He starts making marks on the gate. Whether he is scratching it with his nails, maybe he's got the sword out and he's making marks on that. He starts just salivating all over his beard. Maybe he's salivating. And slobbering all over the gate in order to act insane. And the plan works. And you go, but why would David do that? And why would the arch nemesis of the Israelites let David leave? Well, in the ancient world, if you were insane, if you were a madman, the people believed that either a god was doing this to you or that you were possessed by an evil spirit or a demon in some way. And so in their thinking, if you harmed that person, you would take on their curse or something would happen to you. So protocol was you didn't harm them, but you got rid of them. And that's exactly what they do with David. And then David is able to run off and go to the cave of Adullam, which is in the proper part of Israel at that time, but he's at least out of Philistine territory. So let's just recap where David is at. Okay? He has been anointed as the next king of Israel. He has defeated Goliath in the valley of Elah songs are being sung about him, the country loves him, the king hates him, and in his rage and jealousy tries to kill David several times. David has to flee. He's on the run, all alone, no food, no weapon. He ends up at Nov, gets what he needs, and then goes to Gath and has to act insane so that he can escape with his life and not have another king try to murder him as well. So how's your life going, friends? This is the context for Psalm 34. It is in the midst of this experience and out of this experience that David constructs this psalm. And so, friends, if you do have your Bible and you want to, come with me to Psalm 34 and let me read now what's going on as you have a sense Of the particular context now so with that in mind let's listen to these words let's read these words together it just says this in verse 1 i will extol the lord at all times his praise will always be on my lips i will glory in the lord let the afflicted hear and rejoice glorify the lord with me and let us exalt his name together See, without the context, you come here and you start reading these first few verses and you go, man, that sounds really nice. But then knowing that David is writing these words out of an experience where he was at the lowest of lows, slobbering at the gate. And he says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will ever be on my lips. And then he goes on, verse four, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered in shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord. This is a revere. Revere the Lord, you as holy people. For those who revere Him, those who fear Him, lack nothing. And then for the next 13 verses, David continues to go on and on about how God is close to the brokenhearted, to those who are at these awful times in life. This is a God who is there with them. Read the rest of it on your own time. It is amazing how the rest of Psalm 34 plays out. But friends, what I'm interested in now is asking the question, how do we experience God this way so that we can talk like this in the midst of our circumstances? How can we say, as with David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. blesses the one who takes refuge in him. I will extol him at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. And I believe the answer to that comes in how David actually frames this psalm in the very first verse. Notice with me again, verse 1 just says this, I will extol the Lord at all times. Now let's talk about this word extol. How many of you actually used this word in conversation over the last week? Yeah, we don't use this, do we? I don't even remember the last time I used the word extol. Some of you, maybe you're like, I don't even know what the word extol means. So here's the word behind it, because it's helpful to understand the Hebrew behind it, because I believe this is the key to helping us experience God in the way that David did when David is slobbering in the gay complex at the lowest of lows. Here's the word in Hebrew. It's the word barak. Let me hear you say barak. Well done. Way to have that in ya. Now, barak is a word that can mean to praise or to bless. Now, I put praise up there because other translations will use this. We actually have Hebrew words that literally mean to praise, and it's not this one. Barak is better translated as to bless. And what's really cool about this word barak is that it literally means not necessarily to bless, but the bless is part of it, is it literally means to bend a knee. And this is really cool about how Hebrew works is that Hebrew doesn't have any vowels. It's just consonants. We hear the vowel sounds, but in Hebrew, words that have the same consonants share the same or a connected meaning. So the word barak means to bend a knee it's connected to the hebrew word barak which literally means knee so the question becomes how do you get to bless out of to bend a knee well here's the idea is that when you bend a knee you are taking the focus off of yourself It's like in humility, you are dropping down in order to acknowledge someone else, to lift somebody else up. And the idea in this context, David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. I will kneel, I will bow, I will be reminded that God is the giver of all good gifts and I will bless him. Now, sometimes translations have struggled with using the word blessed because one of the things that people have always asked is if God is, you know, self-sustaining without human involvement, then how can we actually bless God? And so that's why they don't use the word "bless." But the problem is, is that we're actually missing what it means in Barak. Barak is this idea of when you're blessing God, That God is the giver of all good blessings and the moment that we pause and in our hearts, if you will, acknowledge God, we are blessing the blesser for the blessings he has given to us. We are acknowledging to God, you have given this and so I'm going to take a moment and in gratitude and in thankfulness, I am going to bless you. And so David starts off and he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. And this is the context for the rest of the psalm. Now, when we open up our Bibles, it's just Psalm 34. If I was tasked at renaming this psalm in light of what I believe David is doing and the greater context, which we've already looked at, I would simply call the psalm this. Blessing God while slobbering at the gate of Gath because this is what David is talking about. And what's fascinating to me is David isn't the only one to use this kind of language in the midst of really challenging circumstances. Once we hit the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, writing to a Jesus community in Thessalonica, modern-day Greece today, he writes this at the end of 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 5, he says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, in 2 Corinthians 11, you can just make a note of this if you want to go look at this, Paul gives his resume for going through hell and back. And he says, let me tell you about what my life has been like. He talks about how many times he's been shipwrecked. How many times he's been beaten? How many times he's received from the Jews the lashes 40 minus 1? How many times he's been stripped naked? How many times he's been on the run from bandits and in danger of rivers and in danger in the countryside? And he just goes through this Letten test of all the hell he has been through. And in the midst of that, he says, Hey, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. It's the same idea. And when Paul says this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, I don't think he's talking about three different things. I think he's talking about three different facets of the same thing, which is prayer. And I believe that what Paul is doing here is precisely what David is doing in Psalm 34. And they all come from the Hebrew tradition. And within the Hebrew tradition, this idea emerged, which we just call it today this for everything a blessing. And it's this idea that all throughout the day, you say these very short prayers of blessing to God for all of the good things that you are experiencing throughout the day. It's the way in which you don't take things for granted. And so literally, the Hebrew people developed all of these blessings and they all start this way. Baruch, there's your Barak Baruch, can you hear the connection there? Baruch means blessed is or blessed are. So the Baruch, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who, and then you say the blessing. So when you wake up and literally your eyes open, you go, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who gives sight to the blind. And then you get out of bed, who rises us out of bed. There's a blessing for walking. There's a blessing, friends, for being able to go to the bathroom. Because if you don't go to the bathroom and your body backs up, you're in serious trouble. And so you bless God for the ability to even go to the bathroom. You bless God for the sunshine. You bless God even for the rain. You bless God for the drink, the water. You bless God for the food. Um, Yesterday, I got done having a a long run. We came in late Friday night, went for a long run yesterday, got to run along Lakeshore, went down to the state park, ran into a few of you people. And then when I finished my run, like, my legs are burning, and I'm like, Lake Michigan, there you go. We've got some friends that are letting us stay at their cottage. So I took off my shoes, bolted into Lake Michigan. In 60 seconds, I could not feel my body. I went underwater and got a brain freeze. I'm like, Lake Michigan in June? Yeah, this feels about right. But it was like, God, thank you for the ability to feel. Thank you for this water. Thank you for the ability to run. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for West Michigan. Thank you for the memories here. Thank you for this. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. In fact, there is even a blessing for thanking God for the rooster. I kid you not. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King in the universe, who gives the rooster the ability to determine the difference between day and night. Because this is how people would be woken up in the morning. Now... If you hear this, I think a better blessing would be, thank you for strong arms and good aim to throw rocks at roosters that wake us up way too early in the morning. Can I get an amen from somebody? There's my night owls. Very good. You just self-selected yourself. So there's a blessing for everything, and here's the idea behind this, is that there's always things we can be grateful for, and that for many of us, we live, well, I guess we all live in America, because we're all here today, but we live a very privileged life in connection to the rest of the world where half of the world, 4 billion people, live on less than two American dollars per day, America is rich. And for many of us, we just expect. And so when we don't have, we get really upset with God. And we may not say it, but we're basically saying, God, you owe me this. And the idea behind all of these blessings throughout the day is that you are cultivating an awareness of God's presence. You are growing a capacity for gratitude. And when you are growing in your awareness of all the ways God meets us in the midst of our days, and we're demonstrating this gratitude, friends, I believe that this builds up a resiliency within us that when the bottom falls out, like David, even though we may be slobbering at the gate of Gath, we can say, I will bless the Lord at all times. I will find ways to be grateful in the midst of my circumstances. And that we recognize that God will get us through our hard times because we won't be doubting his presence when the bottom falls out because we have cultivated an awareness during the rest of our days and the rest of our life where we see how God is actually more present in our life than we even understand. In fact, for the Hebrew people, they said, if you can't find a way to bless God 100 times a day, then your eyes aren't open to all the ways God is meeting you throughout your day. Paul says something a little bit later on that I find very, very interesting that I think is helpful, especially for those of us who are going through a really rough time. The Apostle Paul to a bunch of Jesus' followers in Philippi writes this in Philippians chapter 4. It goes like this He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And you hear him talking about this, you go, Paul, what is that secret? What is the secret? And Paul, here he goes, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Probably the number one misquoted passage in the entire Bible. That for many of us, we know this passage, and but we don't know this larger context. And I've seen this passage used so many times to go, yeah, it's used in terms of saying, well, I can do all things. I, I can get this job. I can win a million dollars. I can win the championship. I can overcome cancer. I can do this. I can do this. Because my promises that I'm holding on to is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Friends, Paul is writing this in prison. He's been shipwrecked over and over and over again. He has been beaten. He has been stripped naked. He has been on the verge of death. He has been to hell and back. And in this he says, I have learned the secret of being content in any circumstance. And then he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. What he's saying here is that in the worst of times, the promise you can hold on to is that if you are holding on to God, you're going to be able to make it. You will be able to get through, even if it's not the desired result, what God needs you to get through. Because when God is your strength, then you can rejoice always. That if you are like David and you're slobbering at the gate of Gath, or like Paul, you're shipwrecked at sea, or even for my friend Doug. About three and a half weeks ago, I got a phone call from a dear friend. We started this national conference called the Institute of Biblical Context. It's also why I'm here in West Michigan. It's over the next three days. And he called me up and he said, Brad, we haven't shared this with anybody, but I just found out that I have pancreatic cancer. And he said, I'm not going to be at the conference. He says, I'm going to be having surgery here very quickly. And my first question to him was, how are you doing And he said, man, I've got so much to be thankful for. And he rattled off 10 things he was grateful for. And in the midst of that, I just said, you're going to be all right. Because if that's where your heart is right now, whether this turns out the way you think it will or not, you're going to have the strength to do what God needs you to do. Because, friends, there are these moments... Where we get that news, we're slobbering at the gate of Gath, the bottom has fallen out. And for some of you, you are in that space today, and I trust that the Holy Spirit is just doing something in your soul right now that will be helpful to you. I also recognize that maybe for some of us today, um, we're not slobbering at the gate of Gath. In fact quite the contrary <laughs> you know we're standing in the middle of the ala valley our sword is raised high and things are going well guess what friends the question becomes is are you blessing god in these times as well because intuition would say it's a whole lot easier to bless god when things are going well than when they aren't going well and you would think that is the case but i think at times that isn't our reality You see, when David was in the valley of the Elah holding up the sword, it's really interesting the times he is referencing God's presence in the midst of this whole Goliath thing. David has not forgotten God in his triumphs. And David is steeped in the Hebrew traditions. And in Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking to the children of Israel. And he says, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. And it goes on from there and say, when you build fine houses and your businesses grow and things are well, you're going to actually forget the Lord your God. And the passage actually goes on to say, there actually might be a point where you will say, look at all the wealth that I have manufactured for myself. And God goes, but I am the one who even gives you the ability to manufacture wealth. And the warning is that you do not forget God. That for everything there is a blessing that when things are going fantastic and you're standing in the middle of the Aila Valley, friends, are you blessing God or are you forgetting him? Or when you are slobbering at the gate of Gath, can you find all the things that God is blessing you with in the midst of your circumstances and can you bless him for that? Because friends, for everything there is a blessing. And so maybe for some of you, you just spend some time this week. In fact, I, I mean, I'd recommend this for all of you, that you, you spend a little bit of time this week. You set a reminder on your phone, and maybe it's for 6 a.m., maybe it's 7 a.m., maybe it's lunchtime, maybe it's 8 p.m., whenever your quiet time or a time that you can set aside, and the reminder comes up and it just says, for everything, a blessing. And you just ask yourself, have, have I spent my time today? Is there, there's been just these little blessings throughout the day. And for me, friends, it just simply goes like this. I wake up and I go... Dear God, thank you for waking me up. Thank you for a new day. Thank you for the ability to go to the bathroom. Thank you for this food. Thank you for a car. Thank you for gas in my car. Thank you for the sunshine. It's just these little moments all throughout the day where you're reminded about how God is meeting you. And you start to cultivate this because, friends, I can tell you this has been the single most influential practice in my life that has cultivated a heart of gratitude and an awareness of God that has changed my prayer life. That on days particularly where I wake up and I feel like some things aren't going well, I just sit down and go, okay, how can I bless God? What what can I be thankful for? Because there's always something to be thankful for. And so maybe for you, you just set aside some time. Five minutes every day for the next week and you start cultivating this. You put on a three-by-five card for everything a blessing. You stick it on the mirror. You stick it on your dash. You stick it on, you know, next to your computer and you just look at that and you go, okay, how can I begin to build and cultivate this? Because when we are aware of what God is doing in our daily lives, when the bottom falls out, we'll recognize that we have a resiliency, that God will give us everything we need to get through. And when we're standing with the sword high in the valley of Elah, we'll be able to bless the Lord and not forget him and be reminded of when things are going well, who's even behind that in our lives. And friends, friends, as we continue to do this and as we grow in our capacity to do this, I believe like David, we will be able to say, taste and see that the Lord is good blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him, Let's pray. God, we do bless you uh, as a community today. And we say thank you for waking us up. Thank you for getting us out of bed. Thank you for allowing us the opportunity to even worship and sing in a country that allows it. Uh, thank you for the vehicles we drove. Thank you for the bodies that we have. God, thank you for all the many ways that you meet us on a daily basis. God, I know that maybe for some of us, um, we feel like we are at the depths right now, that we are slobbering at the gate of gath. God, we're not minimizing the pain that we feel or the circumstances that we have. We're just not allowing our circumstances to rob us of the joy that is available to us. And we pray, God, that in these moments, that this truth of Paul saying, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, that that would be a promise that we would hold on to and that we would hold on to it in its proper context, God, that you do promise to be there. And that, God, as we come to you in prayer and that, God, as we just allow others to journey with us in our own heartache, in our own pain, in our own troubles, because, God, you often demonstrate your presence through others, that, God, we would have strength that we need. And for those of us who are raising our swords in the Ayla Valley, God, may we not forget you. May we bless you over and over and over again and be reminded throughout the day that you are the God who meets us and gives us what we need as well. God, thank you so much for this community. Thank you for what you are continually doing here. And thank you for the unbelievable privilege it has been to be back in this community. God, we love you, we bless you, and we thank you today. And everybody said? Amen, amen. Amen.